Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking with Nora Toomey, who directed My Father's Dragon, and Meg LaFauve, who wrote it. The movie premiered on Netflix to amazing reviews. So congratulations on that. And Nora is co-founder of Cartoon Saloon, an animation studio and production company based in Kilkenny, uh, Ireland. In addition to My Father's Dragon, she co-directed Secret of the Cows and directed The Breadwinner, both of which earned Academy Award nominations for Best Animated Feature. Hi, Nora. Hello, Meg. Hello. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Welcome to the to show. You, Thank you. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about Father's Dragon and more, but before we jump into the show, we're just going to talk about our weeks or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting. Uh, Lauren, you can go ahead, go first. Uh, how, how was your week? Uh, my week, I've, I'm getting ready for a pitch I have tomorrow and trying to generate as many ideas as I can as we head into the new year, into January, um, into 2023, which seems so crazy to me. Um, I have three projects to take out and I'm just trying to come up with as many more ideas as I can so that I am ready, um, you know, when Hollywood opens back up again. So I'm in idea generating mode. That's awesome. Nora, how was your week? Uh, I had difficulty remembering what kind of a week I had. Uh, in fact, even just before I sat down in this chair, I had difficulty remembering what came before that. I'm still kind of in um, that that mode that you're in when you're uh, making a film, finishing a film, uh, where you're just looking forward all the time to what's the next thing that I need to do. And you don't really look back unless it involves something that you, you know, piece of information that you need to carry forward into the next thing. So, uh, but then I remembered I went to... Uh, the National Museum in Ireland on Monday, which was really nice. And I got separated from my family, which was nicer because I got to spend a bit of time in my own head. Um, and I saw this amazing Neolithic uh, burial tomb that they had like shipped, obviously from, I think from Sligo in Ireland and, and brought, to, uh, brought to the museum. And it had these incredible markings, um, really ancient um, uh, markings, thousands of years old. And then there was like a name scraped in like Lawrence or something kind of beside it. And I went, oh my God, that person, you know, shouldn't have done that. And then I was like, why, why, why is their life less important and the marking of their life less important than somebody from 2000 years ago? Um, Yeah, so I was all over the place basically this week. (laughs) Cool. That's awesome. Lawrence, where are you, Lawrence? Yeah. Um, my week, I'm in the get the notes stage. So I'm realizing internally, I just don't like getting notes. I mean, I intellectually love it, but I just emotionally have a process I have to go through every time. Um, and uh, I'm trying to be very disciplined this round because uh, you get a lot of voices coming in of how to fix it or ideas. And I'm trying to get very disciplined about not just throwing more stuff in. And instead being very, very disciplined about whatever we commit to, how does it move through the whole movie back and forward, back and forward, so that 
one thing can fix a lot of things versus 10 things, everybody throw in everybody's ideas. Um, and it's much harder to do that, quite honestly, because it takes longer to find that thing that will do all of those and work in the act one, it'll work, it'll continue to work here, it'll work here. Like, it's just an incredible discipline to do that. And uh, it's tiring. It's tiring to think for eight hours in a room and then every day uh, and keep that discipline going. So um, I'm a little fatigued, but uh, I'm right. just so Do you happy. think that's, do you think that's like when, when you can't tell if something, if you're just changing it or making it better? That's yeah, a good yeah, check, exactly. right? Yeah, it's a good check to say, you know, is it better or different? And uh, um, that I, at this point, I'm just trying to find something <laughs> that will do all of these things. So I'm not at the, is this better or different stage? But uh, uh, it's, you know, normally if you're home by yourself, you kind of might do it for two hours and then you go take a walk or clean your room and whatever, like you would take a break. But, you know, when you're working with a lot of other people and Nora, you know this, you're in a room and you've got to keep going. Like you just got to keep pushing through. And like you said, Nora, your brain is always, okay, what's next? What's next? Okay. If we put that, in, even that happens in the storytelling process, like, okay, if we put that piece in, then where does it go? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then we jag off and talk about something else. And now we're talking about this other part of the movie, but I, my brain has to go, okay, but wait, 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 how does that affect that? Like it's tiring, I think, because you're constantly having to generate something out of literally nothing. Like what is the new idea? And I'm having to hold the whole movie in my head, right? So that I'm want some part of me is watching that idea move back and forth on the spine of the movie. And then sometimes you just have to forget it and have fun. And yesterday we made ourselves laugh so hard that none of us could breathe. And we had tears streaming down our eyes because it was, so, and I know part of that is just fatigue. It's fatigue laughter, but um, it's also super fun. Like when those crazy ideas come up and uh, you just make each other laugh really hard. So it's also good. It's not all, it's not bad at all. It's just, a bit, it's just, it can be tiring. And I can't imagine how tired I am when I get home at the end of the day. I don't know, Nora, if you felt that way, um, and when you were down in the foxhole making my father's dragon, if the fatigue was there. Yeah, absolutely. But you're also, I think, propelled forward the entire time. You know, uh, I'm just listening to you, Megan, thinking what a, what a brave place to hold, because what, what happens when you realize you have to fix something or uh, something's not working or there's, a, a, you know, there's something really fundamental wrong Um to to hold that space rather than to jump forward and to start oh like here's the first thing that you know and especially if you have a room of people here's the first thing <laughs> that that is going to trip off my tongue and I'm going to say it and then you know everybody has to kind of you know chew on that for a while and then somebody says well that's not going to work because blah 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 or that fundamentally changes the character or the theme like to, so to hold that place even because everybody wants to fix it and everybody wants to make it better so to be able to even manage a creative space where you have more than one voice and you you know you need more than one voice in a, in a situation like that otherwise we're just you know we never make anything if we're all just one person trying to to do something because you never you never have those things pointed out in a way that can kind of push things on onto the next level but to hold it that that is really brave um well, and, and not to, to just it. shove shove yeah. it with stuff <laughs> you have to hold it too sometimes because sometimes my brain has to hold the space to allow the idea that i already think doesn't work to allow it some legs you know what i mean because a, it might work and I might be wrong. And B, we might discover something down that road that I know is a cul-de-sac. And yet 
I just have to let it play in the room because that's part of this, the process of pulling things up. You know, so many times our emerging writers talk about not wanting to write something because they know it's it, it's wrong or and it's like, no, you got to play. You got to let it out. You got to have fun. You got to break it up. And my brain always wants, it's kind of panicking, looking for an answer. <laughs> I am, I'm like some part of me off in my head somewhere is like, oh my God, how are we going to fix this? And I just want to grab onto something. Um, That's great. And you, you also have a wonderful way of working through where you say things like, okay, um, here's a problem and here's a bad solution, but I'm going to tell you the solution. And it actually... Um, it, it makes everybody feel really comfortable and especially the director feel really comfortable because like the director is going to have the brilliant idea. Right. So, but you can say, but you can, you can say something that's going to, um, that's, 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 uh, alerting everybody to the problem, but you're not shoving a solution in there or it, it does allow space for, uh, for that kind of exploration to take place in a safe space as well. Cause I, again, it can get um can get fraught in a room full of people all trying to solve problems or over the pressure of you know we we have to fix this you know that that can be a, a huge pressure and you know all of those different brains with different sensibilities all um you know with their own solution all with their own way of seeing the film even you know um that's that's I'm constantly reminding people this is just a version we're picking a pony right now let's just pick that pony and talk about it and ride that pony all the way and then what's great and what I love working with you too, Nora, is working with artists, they're drawing. So if they can't draw it, uh, it doesn't work, right? Like if they can't, and it's so much, it's so great for your brain to see it manifest on a piece of paper, like boom, that it would look like that. And suddenly paper's going up on the wall. Like there's that version, that version, that version. Um, so it's fun. It's super fun. I love working with artists. And Nora, I mean, it, it was so fun working with you. Um, Nora's brain is incredible. She's just so smart and uh, such an amazing storyteller that I just felt so lucky to, I won the lottery when I got to work with Nora. Awesome. Can we, can we talk a little bit more specifically about My Father's Dragon? Like Meg, how did you, how did the writing process start? I know you optioned the book a long time ago with your um, partner, writing partner, John Morgan. So can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, I was reading the book to my kids and realizing, oh, those images I have in my head are not just things I made up because I was so little when the book was read to me. I don't I didn't actually remember it as a book. I just remembered it as a story inside of me that I still carried. And I was so excited that it lasted so long inside of me that I thought, oh, this this could be a movie. And I just love this little boy that in his backpack, he has everything he needs to. And he's so active. You know, he's the one creating the story. and. Um, I went to my friend, John Morgan, who I was writing with at the time, and we optioned the book. And this was 13 years ago, or more, actually. And uh, we went to my friend, Julie Lynn, and, um, who was a producer. And Julie and I were sitting in a room, and she said, okay, who of all the people making animation would be our favorites? Write it down. And we both wrote down Cartoon Saloon. Well, I think I wrote down Secret of the Kills People. Um, and uh, just because I was such a huge, huge, huge fan of Cartoon Saloon um, and their incredible art and storytelling. Um, and then Julie went to, she was making a film in Ireland, as it turns out, Fate, and uh, met with Nora. And Nora, do you want to tell that story? Yeah, um, I, uh, Paul Young, who's um, one of my partners here in Cartoon Saloon, along with uh, Tom Moore, 
uh, told me that that Julie had been in contact and that she wanted to meet. I think they were premiering um, their film, Albert Nobbs, uh, um, this live action film that that she had made in Dublin. Uh, and they were premiering at, at the Dublin Film Festival, I think. And so I, I read the book um, on the way up uh, to the meeting. And uh, I, I I suppose initially it hadn't been something that I because I hadn't read it as a as a, a child. It's not um, something that's uh, as popular here in Ireland as it is in the States. Um, but I reading, I think it was actually even just the second page of the book that really grabbed grabbed me and grabbed my heart. Um, uh, Elmer, who's the main character, he gets uh, angry with his mom and his mom gets really angry with him. Uh, I think on the second page of the book, because he gives a saucer of milk or a series of saucers of milk to the stray alley cat. And I started to read between the lines there, um, having been a child who had looked up into my uh, parents' face and realized that they were getting angry with me about something that was not a saucer of milk. That was something much deeper than that. I was trying to, you know, uh, trying to navigate that. And, you know, having been a mom who also got really angry with uh, with my children about um, not the thing that, you know, was uh, was right there in the room at the time. I just thought that it was a wonderful opportunity to layer a story in ways um, to make children the center of, of the story. Um, Elmer and, of course, Boris the dragon, but Boris isn't a a pet dragon he's just another kid um there, there was just a wonderful potential then going off into this uh, you know amazing adventure that that elmer uh, you know uh, takes on wild island i thought it was a it was really incredible um so i went to that meeting and started to pitch myself in a nervous kind of way to julie and then uh, i think about halfway through the meeting she said wait a minute are you trying to pitch to me or yourself to me or cartoon sitting to me because i'm desperately trying to pitch to you as well so we just Kind of stopped and relaxed and drank her tea after that and um and that was the beginning of it all yeah and soon after that i remember actually the first time i i talked to you meg was on a, a conference call back you know before before zooms and all of this it was an actual phone with a you know, conference line that you dial into and uh with john and and julie and bonnie and yourself and i think i i talked for about i'd say at least five minutes if not ten minutes straight and then there was this terrible silence and then I realized it was because the call had failed like halfway through or something like that. But I was reading into that silence. I was going, oh, no, they're, 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 they're you know, having second thoughts again. Oh, no. <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, it was just a dodgy, dodgy uh, phone line. What I love about this story is that, um, Meg, you sort of uh, knew exactly where this movie needed to be made. Like you, you knew it was the secret of the Kells people, which is cartoon saloon but also Nora and I love that there wasn't any like anyone who wants to do it or I just wanted to get made it was that particular thing like this is the right story for this person and and these people and I think that's such a good thing to hear because it makes it really clear um knowing that it's a cartoon saloon movie is like I know I know what that feels like you know I've, I've seen those movies I love those movies so it's like when you told me a long time ago that it was going to be with uh, Nora and I was like, oh, I, I can't wait to see that. Like the the emotion in it, the beauty, the design, like all of it. So I, I love that you had that clarity at the very beginning, which we don't always get to have, but it's such it a can help you, that you guys found each you, other. Yeah, it can help you know what you're doing as a writer too. Like an emerging writer may not have access to call up uh, somebody of Nora's caliber and level and start pitching to her. And I understand that. But knowing 
that's your goal or that would be the dream helps actually de delineate what it is you're trying to do um, with your with your story. Totally. So um, you all just fell in love with each other and decided to make this movie together. Um, how long ago was that? And can you talk a little bit about what the process was to get it set up at Netflix? Was it 12 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to feature animation, everybody who's listening. Uh, we, just to say our children, my child now who was a little boy is now gone to college, just to give some context. Um, we we did many, many treatments, um, not treatments. At this point, we pitched and we we worked on the pitch a lot in treatment form, John, I, and Nora. And then we took it out. And uh, this is pre-2012. And uh, nobody wanted it because at the time, everybody wanted movies that they, they could hit the adolescent boy audience and teenagers. <clears throat> and so they kept asking us to age it up. We did try, but it just didn't work. The, the material itself did not want to be kind of self-referential and cynical. And it just, it, it's not what it is. Um, and then I went to, uh, I went and worked on Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur. And when I came back, we got back together. And it, I'm sure it helped that I had some animation credits now because I didn't have anything before. But I also think the main thing that helped was Paddington Bear had come out and now it kind of showed the the, the buyers that a movie made that included a younger audience um, and wasn't that kind of snarky humor, which by the way, I love, it's not a, a judgment about it. It's just a different kind of thing. Um, so we went to, we pitched it at Netflix and um, we made the executives cry. It was pretty awesome in the room. And uh, John was there and it was the last thing John was able to do on the film. Uh, he had cancer and was actually, I think quite ill at that meeting, but boy, I don't know if you remember Nora, but he really just lit up and put so much of his energy into that moment of pitching. Um, uh, it was kind of, it was just a spectacular, very special memory for me. Um, and he uh, has since passed away. So it's also incredibly important and wonderful to me to have a piece of John going on in the world. His big heart is all over the movie. It's just, you know, it's so much a part of him. So that's also been kind of awesome. And then we did many, many treatments and many, many drafts. Uh, uh, you know, often in animation, you're writing, then you quickly go into boards, but I loved Nora's desire to really, uh, work it on the page. Uh, and we did, I, yeah, I talked to our audience all the time about versions and we did a lot of versions. I do remember the day that John called me and said, what if the island is sinking? Uh, because the book, the, the dragon is caught, at, it, it is gotten at the end of the book. And the whole book is him trying to get to the dragon through the wild animals. Um, and we knew we had to bring that up to the first end of the first act because we want that relationship. That is the main relationship of the movie. So that means what's the plot? Because the plot used to be get to the dragon. So now what is your plot of act two? You know, what's your yellow brick road? We can all talk about the tornado and how fun that is all you want, but the plot of the movie is the yellow brick road. So um, that that became the island sinking. That became their big problem and trying to get off of the island and ultimately saving it. Well, it, that story made me want to cry too. Like everything about this movie makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful. Um, I would like to take a second here, Meg, you don't know we're going to do this, but Jeff, would you, uh, 
Jeff has some things he wants to read to you guys before we get into the next part of asking questions. I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, we just found some wonderful, wonderful reviews of folks who love My Father's Dragon. Um, Variety said that My Father's Dragon is a winningly sweet-natured, visually transporting adaptation. Uh, Sunshine State Cineplex, which is a respected publication out of Florida, said, emotionally rich, My Father's Dragon is undeniably one of the best animated films of the year. Women on Film, which is a blog I really like, said, a whimsical adventure amid a coming-of-age tale. It's gentle and charming with characters who behave in unexpected ways. Um, people are really, really loving the movie, and I'm not surprised because um, all of us on this call do as well. Oh, thank you, guys. So I'd love to talk about the the visual process, you know, the visual development of it, particularly the character design and how you translated the book to film, Nora, and what that process was like. Yeah, um, it was, I suppose, I always look at how what a film needs to look like in order to serve the story so it was really I mean I you know we would um kind of almost talk to Elmer as to what he needed in order for the you know for, for the the visuals to serve the, the the story arc um and we're lucky I guess to have so many like we have Giovanna Ferrari our head of story Anya McGuinness our art director people who really just wanted to um to go with that uh whole way of thinking I also wanted to really get down on the floor with children and not to like make a film that's like talking down to children and already the way that the story was being crafted uh, and Elmer's journey was being crafted it wasn't it wasn't that cynical kind of you know a story uh, you know that kind of older older child kind of story it, there was a a kind of a genuine earnestness to it that you get when you're, I don't know, someplace between six and, and 10, you know, that, uh, and I certainly still have a large part of it still, you know, in, in the center of my, my soul. And I think a lot of us do, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not. So, um, one of the first things I did was to actually visit Ruth Stiles Gannett, who um, uh, the, the author of the book that the film is inspired by, not, uh, um, Again, I, we, we because we weren't doing an, an adaptation where, you know, this happens on this page of the book and therefore this should happen, you know, at this uh, minute of the film. But just to get a, like a sense and a feeling for who she is uh, and, and what her values are. And so I went to visit her in this beautiful yellow house that she had spent many decades in with her seven daughters and her, her husband, Peter, and um, just got a sense that she's somebody who loves nature, who loves baking, who loves um uh, just spending time with her own imagination and with children's imaginations. You know, she showed me all of these wonderful letters that children had written to her down through the, the decades, uh, responding to how Elmer was just a normal kid, not a superhero. He didn't have royal blood. He didn't have magic powers. He wasn't the one. He's not the, you know, the, <laughs> the one to rule us all. He's just a kid who's just trying to get through life he's on a spinning rock like the rest of us and he just needs to hold on to someone or something that tells him that um that 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 we can get through it together you know and and so I I kind of I took that from Ruth but then I took it from my own children and uh Rosa Ballester Cabo who's a, a brilliant production designer who has um children as well uh she asked her uh, oldest daughter in particular to uh, draw from the film or from the from the the, the book uh, you know, initially and then from the outlines as they were progressing uh, and and the the drafts of the script 
um, to it just spark the, the imagination. And it's amazing what children do. I asked my, my sons to, to draw as well. I actually paid them to draw because they wouldn't do it for free because uh, that's just the way they roll. But um, so uh, they just did amazing things like they would draw a, a tiger's head huge because that the head is the most threatening part of the tiger. So let's draw that like three times the normal size, you know, or let's draw a tangle of crocodiles because, you know, you get, you get kind of tired drawing crocodiles. So you forget what, where, whose body's whose and all this. So they're just the freedom of, of imagination of children. And then the seriousness with which, you know, uh, that uh, Ruth took um, uh, the imagination uh, and then Meg and John's just their brilliance. And you're talking about that, that, that room that, uh, where, where John and, and you, Meg, were, were, were pitching and I was showing the artwork. There was something really special there. And again, it was that genuine love for story and love for characters, love for these characters. And uh, there was a lovely sense on this uh, production uh, all the way through with the animators working on it, um, bringing parts of themselves because Boris and Elmer are very relatable. There are times I really feel like a Boris when I, you know, bash my hip off the side of a, a table as I'm trying to kind of, you know, work my way through a room or something, you know, and, and trip as I go. And then the, the the eye roller, you know, part of me as well that, that, that Elmer uh, can be. I understand uh, all of these characters. There's parts of me and all of them, but there's parts of our entire team. 300 people uh, worked on this film. 150 of them are artists who, you know, either drew, drew the characters, you know, per frame or, um, you know, made uh, the brush strokes of the background. Um, but they all like they all found something in it for themselves. It takes such a long time, as Meg was saying, to make. Uh, anything in, in animation, you really do have to invest part of yourself in it. And you can't do that if it's not in the story, if it's not in that central character, if they're not striving, if there isn't a question that they have to ask of the universe that you haven't asked, then you can't, you can't connect. Uh, and that's what we all did. We all connected. It was, you know, different for different people working on the project, but, um, but uh, that, that, that led us, uh, that, and the, the really strong backbone, um, uh, that that narrative arc of the film, you know, the, the the climax of this film is very dramatic looking. But what I love, it was so easy to make it dramatic looking because it wasn't just for the sake of it. It's not like, oh, let's pull the palette back to three colors now because we're at the climax of the film. It's let's do that because we've built this particular location to be almost a living, breathing location that is um, emotionally reacting to uh, to Elmer and and Boris and their relationship and what they're trying to figure out. And therefore, it makes physical sense. That there, there's a logic to why the, the, that location looks like it does at the at the um, at the climax of the film. So I loved that that was thought of so well, you know, from Meg and John and then Giovanna and and uh, and Anya and, and Rosa and everybody who who worked on it. They all understood why we actually had um, just a, a, a simple um, graph of the the emotional intensity of the film. Um, there from the the script stage all the way through the production so that when it came even to sound design I was able to talk to uh, Zach and Justin about okay this bit is really intense and it's the answer part to a question that we had in the first act here and so they would say okay well what we'll do is we'll use um, you know some, some particular uh, sound that they had like the the, the sound of a, a, a wicker chair breaking apart that they used for uh, the the island sinking they also put that in, you know, some of the first act stuff. So we have pipes in the apartment. They use those that those pipe sounds just subliminally, so that you get a sense of them without a, 
you know, without that being really on the nose or overbearing. So yeah, that, uh, I forget what your original question was, but that's a big long answer for it. I love that because I want the writers in the audience or the artists to hear that um, all those versions that we did was to get down to something that could hold and that Nora knew deep in her gut and that she, so that every department is now working off of that. The sound design, the guy, we met him, I met, got to meet him at one of these um, question and answers, such a smart guy, but he talked to me about how he's following the story. Like the, the composers, the, the score is incredibly beautiful. Everybody's kind of working off of that fiery furnace that you and the director or you as the writer dug down to doing all of those versions. There's a reason for them because once you get that, it'll, it'll support and define and clarify everything that everybody else is doing. Um, and always, of course, when you're working with a director, it needs to be the director's, it needs to be their rudder, and your job is to dig into that for them, so because so they can do that. But Nora, can you also tell the story, just because I love it, um, about, because the movie is very much about a child's imagination, um, and how, you know, that day that you followed your boys. Yeah, I didn't pay them that day, but I did, you know, I asked them to invite their friends out, and we went for a walk in the in the park. Um, lovely forest park near where I live. Um, and uh, so they were all walking along in a big group. Uh, so this was, again, kind of early on in, in the process. And I was just trying to, again, not not kind of intellectually imagine what it is to be a child, but to try and remember myself, like what were the things, you know, oftentimes the things that just made um, uh, emotional sense uh, rather than intellectual sense were the things that I really kind of understood. Um, uh, I, I, I'll talk about that story in, in, in a second. We, we moved house um, uh, by about, oh gosh, about seven or eight years ago. And my kids still ask me to this day, why did we move house? And I explain, well, we were renting the place. It was damp, you know, damp house in Ireland isn't a great thing. We, there was mushrooms growing out of the wall. We had an opportunity to buy our own house. The mortgage was good. The repayments were good. So therefore we decided to move. And they're like, yeah, but why? because it doesn't make emotional sense they had a tree out the back that they loved and they would hang their teddy bears off of and you know not hang their you know throw, throw their teddy bears up on that kind of stuff um but they it didn't make emotional sense and that's the that's what i think works really well with uh, elmer and boris they have to do stuff and things happen to them and they don't really understand why and that's not really their job really either. They just have to be okay with it. And they have to be, they have to develop the tools to 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 become okay with 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 the things that happen in their in their lives. But yeah, one of one of the windows into that whole or you know, way of remembering for me was just following my kids and their friends around. And so we went to this park and there were a big group of them. They were they were walking, they were talking about something that was happening in school, um, uh, where somebody was being mean to somebody else or something like that. But as they were talking about it, um, one of them just got this huge log that was on the side of the path and just started to carry it, like just pull it along by the branch. Right. So I started to pull it along. And my adult you know, brain was saying was just about to say, stop, don't do that. Somebody will trip over that. Leave it where it was. There's probably insects living there. You're disturbing their home. All this kind of, but I said nothing. And I just so yeah, he started pulling the log along and then they continued to talk about school but then they all helped to pull the log <laughs> you know along the path 
So as I was trying myself not to trip over the logs, just still listening. And then uh, somebody else said, you know, watch out for that big black hole there. So they all pulled the log around the black hole. Nobody said, what do you mean? Are you talking about an imaginary black hole? Or, you know, again, it was just, they all took for granted. Okay, there's a black hole there. So let's move the log around it. Uh, and that's the realm that we're at with, with, uh, with my father's dragon. It is very much that dreamlike space um uh that and and those kind of experiences are, are keeping my ears open and my heart open to those kind of experiences rather than intellectually plowing ahead with what's like the perfect you know uh, story or anything like that um uh, those are the things that that really connected with me and i think connect on a like if you're if you're open to them they'll really connect with you on that kind of childlike level that we all still have inside of us and it's a really good point to, for our writers to think about, like often, even right now when I'm in the room, an idea will come up that intellectually works or could work, and um, we'll spend some time on it. But then I can feel in my body and in everybody in the room, there's no emotion behind it. Um, it's not leading us to a moment that feels emotional or makes emotional sense. It just doesn't feel true. Uh, to what we're trying to do. And that's kind of my job to go, okay, I'm not feeling this, is somebody else feeling it? And if you're feeling it, explain to me what you're feeling, or that really is a good idea, but I just don't, it's not emotional. Um, and so that, and it is again, a discipline to keep trying to go back towards, even if it doesn't even make intellectual sense, you know, and just, I love that story so much. I just love that story that you tell, and I'm going to hold it in my heart forever, Nora. I remember you in the room, Meg, at one point we had these three rabbits in the film, which were very funny and everybody thought they were really cute and they would have this nervous laugh and they were they were laughing because they were really uh, afraid and that and they were lovely. But I remember it didn't they didn't really have a good function <laughs> uh, for for how the story was developing. And I remember you saying we have to lose them and we have to give their what the little, you know, the thing that they were doing to a character for whom it meant a lot more and for whose interaction would really compromise Elmer and really make him understand the perspective of other people in his life very naturally. I remember your face when you said, we're going to have to lose, you know, the, the rabbits, you know, and I remember that thing of like, fuck, you're right. Who's <laughs> <laughs> the rabbit? Yeah, the rabbits. I, I want to see the artwork of the rabbits now I want to see how cute they, they are they were very cute I but love, they were well worth losing <laughs> I love the story of the log because as a writer sometimes you have something in your script or your story that you're sort of dragging along with you like that log and you don't know why and then as a writer sometimes you have to say to your characters watch out for that black hole even if you don't know what the black hole is you just like you just write in the script like scary black hole here and then watch what your characters do with that log do they all work together to drag the log around it do they ignore you and the warning do they fall into the hole do they use the log somehow to cross the hole so it's like that that's the sort of like I don't know why I'm dragging the, the log is emotional somehow so I'm I'm just dragging it along with me in the script and I don't know why yet and so I think it's that um it's like that in the, the movie in the you know the oh we have these rabbits right? We're dragging these rabbits along, you know, and you've got to a good place where you gave that emotional energy to another character, you know, so it's sort of, it's really hard though, losing the rabbits or losing the log to get to the other side of the black hole. But, um, you know, as storytellers, we have to drag that stuff along with us sometimes. So I love that you're dragging the log along. 
you don't know why and you have to stop that grown-up part of yourself the intellectual part like that doesn't make any sense why would my character be dragging a a log through a shopping mall like your child brain to the child imagination yeah I just think that's such a great story on so many levels thank you for sharing I love that story it seems to me like that's kind Um, of sorry what the whole movie's sort of about and like Meg I'm seeing it as an increasingly common thematic in your work which I love is like the beauty of holding space for all of our emotions I even love the idea of making emotional sense out of something it seems like by creating these stories where children are having to make emotional sense of the world we're reminded that adults somehow let go of that as they age you know the intellectual side of who they are takes over so what I love about your movie and I'd love to hear you speak about this, is that like, it's as much for kids giving them permission to feel and experience challenging emotions as it is a reminder to us. I think that's why everyone cries when they watch your movie because they're either discovering it for the first time or re-remembering that we need to embrace that as adults too. And I, I don't know if that's how you read the movie. Yeah, or no, when, fair, when, we, when we were doing the movie, uh, I think it's script stage, I can't remember. There were many versions. Um, it was very important to Nora, and you can speak to this, Nora, that um, Elmer's solution cannot save his mother and fix that problem because that's too much to ask of a child, and it's not appropriate to ask of a child. A child cannot solve an adult's problem, um, but that instead it's about solving his own interior transformative, what he, he needs to do for himself, so that when he goes home at the end of this adventure, he hasn't he isn't coming home with the magic bullet to solve his mother's problem with the sack of gold or whatever it is. Um, and I, I always really appreciated uh, Nora's shining a light on that because it would have been honestly easier. I.e., we talk about five answers. Like the first answer is he gets the sack of gold and he comes home and opens the shop and, you know, and that that's not what the movie's about. And Nora had a really keen eye on a child. Like, like Nora talked about in terms of that first moment in the book is a child realizing there's so much more going on here than I can even process. And you know what he's fighting for, yes, externally is a shop, but what is that emotionally? What's the relationship? I would keep talking about this on the show. It's all about relationship. He's losing his mother, you know, that he's losing that special ex- time and relationship that they had uh, under the stress of what she's going through. Um, so it kind of went into the writing, you know, I remember Nora, you and I talking about that tr- moment in the truck really early in the film, um, and how important that was that he's a kid in a truck thinking, okay, maybe this is an adventure, you know, and he's starting to smile and he looks over at his mother and she hunches over the steering wheel and looks very stressed. And now he's like, well, maybe not. She's looking for like, it's the start of the, of the shift. And, um, what I loved about working with Nora and Cartoon Saloon is Nora and I having this conversation about this truck moment, um, which goes all the way through into the next scene. Um, and then that incredible animation um, that they were able to do in that truck. I don't know if you wanna talk about that, Nora. It's it's so subtle and beautiful and emotional, that moment in the truck. Well, you, you, there, there's a lot of times in the film where our uh, storyboard team really brought things down and in kind of thing rather than being really expansive about things and it really like they, they really did think of the uh 
the the breadth of the film uh it, you know uh, like so so a more expansive sequence in the film would really hit because we've been quite internal and uh and uh small and subtle uh, about other moments yeah there is there is that moment where elmer has this backpack that his mom you know told him could contain the seeds of a really new secure life together um uh, and that he holds on to uh, uh tightly but but is starting to, to to sense that 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 stress from her uh and and so he just it's just a little glance that that he uh you know that a uh, little glance that he does and sometimes that can be it's an interesting thing with uh, you know animators because an animator might only get a couple of shots like that right on, on in the film um and they don't get a chance to you know do something really physical and something that really shows the breadth of their their skill but it it takes as much skill to know when to be really really subtle and be really human and to let your audience read what's going on behind his eyes and read into that hunch uh in, in the mom's you know shoulders rather than you know have a, a bigger moment where they go through a pothole or you know there's a big lot of traffic and she gets really angry or something like that there the, if you're again if you're open to the the subtlety of moments like that they do you know they they do uh re reward you um i uh yeah i i remember we talked to a, a child psychologist early on as well in in the, in the process and to me that was really illuminating and again it makes you kind of remember what it was like to be a child when you know when when that security is taken away you know that the sense that there's a rhythm to life there's a pattern there's something that it's predictable i know you know i know who's who's calling my name before i even look i can tell by the sense of somebody who they are i don't need to look over there i know exactly what's in that corner and when that's taken away how insecure you feel and how you literally feel like the world is, is sinking beneath you or your your the ground that you're standing on is unsafe um and so all of those kind of um it, it, ideas were really really helpful when it came to the animation because you know we spend a lot of times um uh, you know having elmer stand on ground that's not secure and not you know that he has to learn how to rebalance he has to learn what he can hold on to and who he can hold on to um uh, and uh, uh, how to keep his head above, above water literally um and everything i love how you talked about <clears throat> the art the design even of the locations that as a story, you and I talked about how when he arrives on Wild Island, it can't be incredibly beautiful and feel safe because that's not where he is emotionally. He doesn't, yeah. he's afraid to be here. He's worried about it. And then it can grow beautiful as he goes. And I thought that, you know, just your incredible ability to then take that all the way into the design in terms of, uh, you, you were talking about pattern versus chaos in the design. Mm -hmm. I just, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, and then again, this is coming from the illustrations in the book. We were observing how the you like how how the the use of pattern and the, the 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 illustrations in the book was really beautiful, and how the animals almost feel like they're part part of the pattern. And so we use that uh, in moments where the animals on the island are secure. They're in their own habitat. They're uh, camouflaged in those areas, and you can very clearly see that they are part of the pattern. And then as the island sinks and the island starts to almost break apart in places that pattern is ripped apart and those those animals their sense of security uh, their sense of even being camouflaged in their background is is taken from them uh, and so that that goes all the way uh, through the film but again it's 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 winding its way around a really really strong um central narrative that's what makes it easier um 
when you have all of those big, you know, um, room discussions or those kind of like dark nights of the soul or, you know, with, with the, the story, it means that when later on a sound designer or a composer or a, a, an animator says, why does this scene exist? Because I'm just about to spend, you know, maybe a week animating this scene. So why does it exist? You're able to tell them because you fought for it, because it doesn't contain rabbits that had to go, <laughs> that were cute, but didn't, you know, serve a, a good story function. Um, they, you, you, all of that stuff has been dealt with and therefore you're able to tell them with complete confidence uh, this scene exists because it moves Elmer on in this way. Uh, and it, it's a it's an answer to something that we we established in the first act. Um, and I think you're really clever, but you're not actually you're just, you know, repeating what was said, you know, a year previously you know, in a in a, in a meeting where it was all hammered out. Um, uh, so is there anything else that uh, you want to share about the movie, the process, working together, something, a story, something that was meaningful to you? I, I do I I again I suppose like because for me all of this is a journey I'm a reluctant director I don't think even with the Secret of Cows which I co-directed I came on board that that project because uh, because Tom asked me to because I had made short films and I felt I had I had something to 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 offer it because we knew it had to be done for a really you know small amount of money in a short space of time uh, you know across many different countries and that so uh, even when it came to the breadwinner I I, I I'm led utterly by my heart and I think you can only you can only you know do that I think if you if you make a decision about directing something um because it's a good career move or something <laughs> I think I think you're gonna really it's you're gonna have a, a lot of trouble um you have to be led with your heart you, there has to be something in there that you don't know the answer to that you're trying to explore and maybe at the end of the filmmaking experience you won't know the answer still you might be a little closer or you might, you know, you, 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 something like that. But you, I, I think you do have to come at it absolutely wholeheartedly um, because you can't ask other people to invest in something if you don't fully invest in it. Um, and you you live or die by that. You know, you you it's either a success or a failure. If it if it's if it's if it's not successful, then it's um, it's not because you didn't really, really try. And if it is, then it's because you know you, you, you tried. You can't this the only thing you can control in this whole game is is that, you know, can I find something that really is going to sustain me through this entire process? And that can that, you know, that that we can build a team of people around that can also find something to sustain themselves in it. Um, I think that's that's the most important thing. Love that. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's beautiful. I think it's such a good vital message for all of us in our work, but in our lives as well, the choices that we make, the people that we surround ourselves with. Um, it's a good message. I really needed to hear that this morning. Thank you, Nora. <laughs> um, so uh, we are going to wrap up the show with the three questions we ask at the end of every episode when we have a guest. Um, so uh, what brings you the most joy when it comes to directing? Mm, seeing that spark in somebody's face when they really get something and they know that you're you're going they're going to take it far you know in in into something that you're you're good jealous of I get this good jealous feeling you know when somebody just is brilliant and you're thinking damn it I wish I could do that uh it's incredible I wish I had done that but they've done it and it's just amazing and now it can't be done again because you've done it <laughs> But it's just, a, I love that. When I get the good jealous feeling, 
uh, that's when I know that yeah that things are really really uh, amazing. I've had that several times on this uh, on, on this production, uh, which is just uh, incredible. Yeah. The flip side of this question is, of course, what pisses you off about directing? Oh, what pisses me off about directing? Um, I won't say it pisses me off, but I, the, what the, what is a, a part of the the and I don't know whether it, it because I'm like a studio owner and a director that maybe it's unique to that kind of a setup. But I do find myself, especially in the last year of production, where I know what's important. The face in the center of the screen is important, whether the hand and the, the side of the screen grows and shrinks a little bit because the animator, you know, you know mightn't mightn't have paid that much attention to it. But we have this amount of time, and this amount of money left or whatever. Um, I like I always go for like, what's the important thing? And the scene is that working? Then that's great. Let's go with that. Uh, so I'm often the person in the room saying, eh, actually, that's not important. Um, you know, when somebody says that hand is like, you know, jiggling or it's, it's not working right or whatever. Um, uh, so so that's, the, I suppose, the surprising thing about directing. It's not like, let's strive for the best that we can be. It's it's like, yeah, that, that bit doesn't really matter. So let's just like go with the face. Let's not spend our animators either because they can spend a long time fixing that hand, but then they might be really tired when it gets to the face in the next scene, you know? So, uh, so, so just, um, yeah, a lot of times you get to be the person that's going, no, no, that's not, that's not that important. So let's just, you know, go for the things that are, that are really important. And then your heads of department are the ones that are really striving for the best. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. That applies to writing too. You know, sometimes you just have to, in this version, in this draft, you're going to go for the important parts and know that the other parts are not going to be developed or what they need to be because you're going to have 15 drafts. So just mm -hmm. focus on on the arc or what's happening. And so the other question, last question is, if you could be remembered for one scene you've directed and you've created, uh, which would it be and why? In any film? Any film, any film, any film. I think it's the Suleiman story in The Breadwinner. Um, for me, that's uh, something that really, um, like, Parana remembering her brother who she couldn't speak of because the tra trauma in their family was so great. Um, a child who picked up what he thought was a toy and it uh, uh, wasn't. It was something that took his life. Uh, that was something that it took us a long time to find exactly what that was going to be and how it could express something that was multi-generational um, you know encapsulated all of the different conflicts uh that that we were trying to uh represent uh with that film i think for me um that's one that uh uh felt like it just came from um yeah from a collective voice i think i, I think maybe that's i suppose of of anything that uh I, I think I probably go to my grave <laughs> no matter what I do, you know, or, or what perspective I have on whatever. I think that's probably the one that I, I, I'll go to my grave thinking I'm, I'm proud that Suleiman got to speak uh, in, in, in that part of that film. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Nora, so much for coming on our show. Um, and you can catch My Father's Dragon on Netflix right now. Uh, yes, thank you. And if you haven't, and this is not to you nor this is to our audience, uh, join our Facebook. I mean, you're welcome to join our Facebook group, but I'm not speaking to I'm you. A like lurker. You, I'm a lurker. To, yeah, I'm you're. Lurker. Oh, you are. Okay. Um, so uh, check out our Facebook group and uh, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are 50 away from 700 
So if you would uh, go to uh, Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review, that'd be really helpful. We can keep doing what we're doing. And check out our Patreon, which we developed and created and are in there just to really help you um, in a more direct way um, with workshops and talking to you about your story. Um, And I just want to say one more time, Nora, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, and Meg, Larian, and Jeff. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.